The book of Micah gets its name, of course, from the very first verse there where it's credited to the prophet Micah. Well, Micah in general is really a shortened name from Micaiah. The name means who is like Yahweh. And really it kind of gives us a, a clear picture of the theme that we're going to develop and we're going to see developed in the book of Micah. And the fact is who is like Yahweh? Who is as just as Yahweh? Who is as faithful as Yahweh is? Well, the answer is no one. He is faithful in everything he does, and he is just. And he is just in dealing with sin and coming to the, the kingdoms of Israel and the kingdoms of Judea. We'll see here in Micah how the prophet condemns them and shows their sin to them and tells them what's going to come to them. So we'll see that as we move through here. But just a little background information so we know what kind of was going on. Micah was a prophet in the later 8th century B.C. He was the contemporary of some, uh, some other prophets you may know, like Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. And he mostly prophesied to Judea, the kingdom of Judea, but he also prophesied to the kingdom of Israel. We see here that uh, in the beginning of verse 1, he tells us that he's prophet to the, under the kings of, of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So that's the kingdoms that we see primarily his prophecies, his oracles will deal with. The whole structure, as we will move through, we see it really divides up into three, three structures. And that's based a lot to do with the language, how it splits up. He begins with here, and he splits it at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 1. So he splits it up. So it splits up very nicely into three sections. And that's how we're going to kind of deal with it. We're going to deal with that. We're going to see a little adjustment in there as I'm dealing with some subjects, but mostly we're going to divide it into three. And it also has a slight courtroom motif, which is what you're going to see a little bit, because the judge is coming. The judge has come. He has sent his prophet to announce his judgment on the people. So let us begin verse 1, or excuse me, verse 2, because verse 1 just gives us an introduction, which we already know. So verse 2, hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple for behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep palace. We see the judge has come. The judge has come in a very powerful example, a very powerful way Micah is thing. The Lord God has touched down on the mountains. And they're melting in his fury. He has given an example. He says, now the time of their sin is going to be judged. And here, this first courtroom, the first person to touch down, to be, uh, the first person called as witness is God himself. He's coming. And you see verse 5. Look here. The reason they are judged. And all this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Those are the two capitals of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. They are so sinful and wicked that their two capitals have been named as the centers of rebellion against God himself. And so he's dealing particularly with them. The judges of sin. So in here, as we move further in, we get to see verses 6 through 16. And he goes judgment on sin. 
We see the judgment of the capital of the kingdom of Israel is sure. Verses 6 and 7. For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, a planting place for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley, and I will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed, and all of her earnings will be burned with fire. All of her images I will make desolate, for she collected from a harlot's earning, and to her earnings of a harlot they will return. Samaria's judgment is announced, and Samaria's judgment is final. Sennacherib will enact this judgment in 722 B.C. We will see that. They will be done just this way, complete desolation, as his army comes through and deals with them. Verse, verse 8, you see as he moves through. The prophet laments in the coming destruction. And verse 8 says, Because of this, I must lament and well. I must go barefoot and naked. I must be a lament, lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah, it has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. So now the prophet turns to the kingdom of Judah. And he's saying, now I'm lamenting even over the fact that this judgment is now coming to my kingdom, to Judah. The kingdom of Israel's judgment is certain. Now it's coming to the gate of Jerusalem, the capital city of Judea. And he sees this. But I want you to note something here. I want you to note the fact that it only comes to the gate. As he moves through these next two verses, he's going to basically entail the movement of Snacker's army through the area and how he conquers all these nations. As we move through all the way down to verses 15, we'll see here. won't move through it all right now, but we see as he, as he progresses through this, he's progressing through cities. But what is... What is interesting about this whole thing is that he doesn't sow the conquering of Jerusalem. Because we know from, from the, the, remember the angel of the Lord that destroyed the Assyrian army so that Jerusalem wouldn't be conquered? Jerusalem wouldn't be conquered until 586 B.C. So we see the accuracy of the prophet of the Lord, how he tells them this before it even happens, that they would be spared for a time. But let's move. He says, uh, he says, tell it not in Gath. Well, that's the Philistines, the land of the Philistines. So although this prophecy is coming and doom is certain for them, he says, do not tell it to the Philistines so they can brag. Do not tell it to so they can rejoice over this gushing. But certain it is. As we move down to, to th- uh, verse 13, it says, harness the chariot to the team of horses and inhabitants of Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughters of Zion. Because in you, you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. So it was believed to be a military complex there involving the chariots and so, so forth. So it was a touch base between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdoms of Judah. But what's interesting about Lachish is this. Lachish was destroyed by Sennacherib, right? So when you, you can still go and see, if you Google it on the internet, check it out. You can see that Lachish is actually mentioned in some of the relief pictures praising Sennacherib's military accomplishments. So Micah, again, how accurate is the word of God that we can even see this stuff today recorded, the fact that that he celebrated over his destruction. Again, another thing that's very interesting is the fact that he didn't put Jerusalem on that that relief because he didn't get it. He was destroyed, turned back. So we see here, there be, um, we see, let's uh, move to verse 16. We see here that the, 
destruction and the dismay is so terrible that Jerusalem and and, uh, Samaria will make themselves. He says, make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go forth with you from you into exile. So their inheritance, the thing that they pride themselves on, their children, would go into exile because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry and immorality. Israel and and the kingdom of Israel and Judea are getting walked through some of the worst curses that come upon them. I don't know if you may remember from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, there is curses and there's blessings. If they obey, their land will be fruitful. Their freedom will be certain. Their kingdoms will be established and their children will inherit the land. Well, we're on the other side. The idolatry, the immorality has reached the point that God has come in judgment. And now they're coming down the other side. They have ha- they're having it taken from them, piece by piece, according to their wickedness. So as we move into chapter 2, we'll have to realize that chapter 1 denounces sins against God. Now we move to chapter 2, we're going to see the prophet dive a little deeper and look at the sins, particularly against the people themselves, the men. Sins against mankind. The wickedness of the people and their leaders is condemned in chapters 2, verses 1, all the way through 3, verses 12. That's the next next section we're going to look at. So the wicked are people and scheme evil schemes and have broken the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Woe to those who scheme in iniquity, who work out evil in their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is the power of their hands to covet their fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house and a man in his inheritance. They continue to show their heart as they break the Lord's commandments. Therefore the Lord says, Behold, I am planning against them a family, a calamity, for which you cannot remove your neck. There is no escape from the calamity that he's bringing on them. No escape from the destruction that he will bring Therefore, you will have no one, look at verse 5, Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not, uh, do not speak out, so they speak out, but do not speak out concerning these things. Reproach will not be turned back. It is by being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient. So as all this is coming down on them, the prophet turns. And the people turn to the prophet and says, do not speak out. Do not, do not declare this stuff on us. But he answers, verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 7, Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to those who walk uprightly? The prophet is saying, listen, if you were righteous, if you were doing what the Lord was telling you to do, I wouldn't be speaking these words to you. When it says, look at there, end of verse 7, to the one who walking, do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? But that's not them. They cannot stop what's coming to them. Even the good have become enemies. Look at verse 8. Recently my people have arisen in an enemy, as an enemy. You strip the robe of the garment from the unsuspecting passers-by. And they prey upon the helpless. Look at verse 9. The women of my people you evict. Each one from her, uh, from her pleasant house, from her children, you take my splendor forever. They only desire 
false speech and false prophecy. Verse 11, look at verse 11 there. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be a spokesman to this people. We're talking utter idolatry, utter wickedness. The hearts of these people are completely gone. The Lord is, is condemning them from the top to the bottom, and he'll continue. He'll move to leadership in a second. But the prophet does something here in the last verses in 12 and 13. He does something very interesting. And if you're not used to sometimes what prophets do is they move, they'll, they'll flash back real quick to something positive. It's almost like they've given so much negative that they know the people now, are, are, their hearts are so sorrowful that they have to give them a flash. They have to give them some hope, like a spark flying up from a fireplace, like a you know, spark flying up from the thing, just enough, just enough to draw their attention up in the darkness that he's bringing here to them. Look at verse 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by. So their king goes on before them, and their lord at their head. This is a glimpse of the millennial kingdom. This is a glimpse of God regathering his people. As he's walking them through their, de their degradation and, their, uh, and their, their, their punishment, he gives them a glimpse in verse 12 and 13, a glimpse that we will expand on in chapter 4. But right now, look at this. Look at the verse. This is how it breaks out. He says, God will gather his people, Judah and Israel. It's verse 12. He will be their shepherd. This is a continuing theme through this whole book. You'll see more and more of his shepherding of his people. The breaker. It's a name for the Messiah. Messiah will tear down any opposition to their assembly and the king will go before them and their God at their head. So this is a, a slight glimpse of a promise that is coming. A slight glimmer of hope before we move into the condemnation of the leaders. Look at verse, chapter 3. And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off the skins. Here's, here's where he moves in some of the most critical language he can describe these leaders in. He describes literally the leaders running down the people of Israel as prey. Listen to this. It's, it, sounds, it sounds terrible. He says, you tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and strip off the skin from them. Break their bones and chop them up as for the pot, as meat in the kettle. They are literally being hunted by these leaders. The leadership of their, these people are so wicked that they're literally, the only way to describe their actions towards the people is to describe they are hunting them like prey. In the saddest part yet, look at verse 4. They will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. So even in this time of terrible, terrible oppression, God will turn their face from them, for their punishment is nigh. Punishment is now. The, the punishment against them is certain. Let's look at verse, 
Verse 5 here. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. Now he turns to the prophets. So he's just dealt with the leaders. Now he's turned to the prophets. Prophets are wicked, completely wicked. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against whom who puts nothing in their mouths, they decry holy war. <laughs> they are literally uh, bought up, bought off. They cry whatever they need to cry. They say whatever they need to say to benefit themselves. We'll see later on that they take a bribe. They'll do whatever it is. They don't speak for the Lord anymore. They speak for themselves. That's just a poetic way of saying that when they, when they get what they want, everything's good. When they get what they want, don't want, everything's bad. They'll get, they'll get it either way. They'll say what they need to to get their food. But they will be dealt with also. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners, diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. Darkness. So prophets, seers, diviners, they all claim to see. They all claim to see the reality, to know the truth, to know what's going on, to know the future. God gives here example after example, darkness, darkness, darkness. That's all they will see. Their punishment is certain. Because what they should have been doing is warning the people against their sin and their idolatry. But they were profiting themselves. And now God will bring darkness on them. Look at verse 8. You have a shot of you have a Micah here bringing, bringing a shot at him. He says, On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Now hear this, O heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountains of the temple will become high places of a forest. So the real prophet of the Lord now turns to them and addresses them and says, Listen, because you take money for a bribe, you speak falsely, you leaders mistreat your people. Now this is coming. The thing that you take pride in, look at it here, it says in the verse 11, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. They say, We're God's people. We're Yahweh's people. Calamity will not come upon us. But they had forgotten the promise of Yahweh to punish sin, to do justice against injustice. And here he's, he's bringing it to them. This last verse, verse 12, says, Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. The complete, that's basically like east, south, west, north of the temple of the Jerusalem city complex. That's what he's saying. 100% total desolation. The thing by which you trust in 
the city of your security, the temple that's supposed to be the meeting place for the Lord, where you trust in it, you vainly say you trust in it and blaspheme him, now will be destroyed. It will be a desolate place, a place like a forest. This is, to them, this would be the, the darkest thing they could hear. God has departed, and he has destroyed the house that he built there. But in their darkest hour, God is faithful still. Why? Because he's always faithful to his covenants. We're about to move. Micah does a transition here. That he transitions, he builds it poetically to the darkest point where they just had saw, heard of the temple being destroyed. Their place of pride. Now he moves to the promise of the millennial kingdom. Chapter 4. And we'll move into, this will be section 2. This is with the restoration in the millennium. So we'll move from chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 5, verses 15. The Messiah's kingdom is described in verses 1 through 5. See, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations come and say, many come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion go forth the law. And even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, when no one, uh, where, with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of his hosts has spoken. From some of the darkest times, complete destruction, Micah turns to the millennial kingdom of peace. Where even where all the world will come to Zion, all the world will come to Jerusalem to seek his law, to understand what the Lord would have them do. They will completely destroy their, their uh, weapons of war, beat them in the plowshares, There'll be so much peace because of the reign of Christ from Zion that they will sit under fig tree and sit in peace. Contrast that to what you just heard about complete destruction. And that's the turn here. That's the turn of God saying, you will be punished. Justice will come for your sin. But remember, I'm faithful to my covenants. I'm faithful to honor my promises. And I've made promises to your forefathers. And that's what he's speaking of here. His promises to give you a land and to give you a kingdom. And he will reign with his people. Look here, look at verses, uh, look at verses 6 through 8. Israel will be gathered. In that day, which is a term that, that referring to the millennial kingdom. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. And gather the outcast, even those who I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, from now on and forever. 
There's a promise, as we heard a minute ago, about the shepherd, the great shepherd. Here you hear the great shepherd of the promise. This language implies that. Listen, he goes, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcasts. Even those I have afflicted, I will make a lame a remnant. And the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign. So he's gathering his sheep from all over. He gather and care for them like a great shepherd. That's what he's promising. So he's promised peace. He's promised a kingdom. And he's promised to gather them from their dispersion. And they will reign with him. In this last verse, and the Lord will reign over them, them in Mount Zion. For they will have even, verse 8, they will even former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. So they will reign with him in the millennium. But here comes Micah turns back. Micah turns back to the reality they're living. They're going to go into dispersion. They're going to go into punishment. They're going to go into, but they will suffer but they, but they will defeat their enemies. Verses 9 through 13. Look here. Look at this section. Now when you do cry out loudly, is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? The agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out to the city to dwell in the field and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let, let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know. Listen, the Lord is preparing them for punishment. Though they gloat over the fact that Israel has been punished and dispersed into these many nations, look here at this verse. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his purpose for he has gathered them. He has gathered these enemies. He has gathered them like sheaves to their threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughters of Zion. For your horn will, I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many people, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. So they may gloat, and they may gloat over the fact that Israel and Judah, the tribes, have went into the, have went into, has been sent across the world in punishment. But the Lord's going to assemble them and destroy them. Israel will defeat their enemies. That's the promise. Now, we transition because we got a kingdom now, right? Millennial kingdom. Promise of peace. Well, you need a king. And now we transition to the famous Micah 5. I'm sure we all just, coming out of Christmas, you've heard it. We're going to look at it. Look at the future king, Micah 5, 2 through 15. The Messiah will be born, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you owe one, for one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. So the Messiah, the, new, the king that will rule over this millennial kingdom, will be born in Bethlehem. A little bitty town and a village, basically, in Judah. And he will be born to do what? Look here, look at this verse. From you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. So he will go forth to be the ruler that God is called to do what he's doing. He's going forth to fulfill the purpose of God, to be the ruler of Israel, the king of kings. 
Verse 3, he will be born in an expectant time. He was born during the Roman occupation of Israel. He was born in a difficult time. But he will gather his people from the worldwide dispersion. It's the latter half of verse 3. The king will rule over the entire world. Look at verse 4 through 6. And he will rise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Israel will be a blessing and a source of warning against disobedience. So not only will this king rule completely, but those who rule with him, that will inhabit all the nations of the world. Their existence will be a blessing, will be like dew. It says, look here at verse 7, it says, Be like a dew, they will be refreshing to the nations. And it will be like a lioness, that will be a warning to those who will be disobedience. Complete rule, complete reign, even those who reign with him as they spread across the world. And the king will cut off all dependence on other powers. Look at verses 10 through 15. And that day, declares the Lord, he will cut off the horses from among you and destroy your chariots. So chariots and horses were like the tanks back then in that time. So they, they were something that somebody completely trusted in. It was actually disobedience to the Lord to even have them. But they trusted in them. Well, the king is saying, I will, I'll destroy those. Any reliance, you're going to see him do away with any reliance that they have on anything else, anything they trust in, complete trust in him. Watch how you word. We're at verse 11. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications, the walls that you hold protection, hold secure. I will cut off the sorcerers from your hand, and I will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your ashram from among you and destroy your cities. I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on nations which have no, not obeyed. So he will destroy all idolatry, anything they're depending on but him, and he will destroy anything that's disobedient to him. Complete rule, complete reign. This is the king. Now, with the hope and the promise of the king and his millennium kingdom still lingering, the prophet now brings them back to the reality at hand. The court is back in session. So this final section here, this final section, verses six, uh, chapter 6-1 for verses 7-20, is we come back to the courtroom motif. The first section, God was judging them. Second section, we have the promise and the hope of the millennial kingdom and the king. And now we move to the third section, where the courtroom is back in session. But we're going to have three different people speaking. So this is where it gets a little bit difficult, but we're going to work through it. So you have three different people speaking. You have God, Micah, and the nations. The first section, we have God calls creation to witness. Where God was the witness in the first, in the very first chapter. Now we have God as a witness in chapter 6. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise and plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. Because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. He is calling them to attention. He's even calling the mountains to witness. This is something that you see in the early on in the, the Pentateuch, the early uh, in Exodus. He calls the mountains as witness. And that's what God is doing here. He's saying, listen, I have an issue with my people. 
I have a dis, uh, dispute with my people. But in this verse, in these following verses, I want you to see something. I want you to see something extremely special. How tender God speaks right now. So he's dealt with them harshly. He's prophesied or told them what the future was going to be difficult for them. And he's promised the kingdom. But here in this last, he becomes tender. He calls them my people several times. Look at these verses. Verses 3 through 5. My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, my people. Remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and from Shitham to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. God tenderly questions them. What have I done to you? And how have I wearied you that you would sin this way against me? That you would do so much rampant idolatry, knowing that I see all things, that I know all things. You cannot hide your sin from me. Why have you done this? Why have you wearied? Why have I wearied you? Have I done? Have I not? Have I unduly burdened you? Have I not fulfilled the promises I have to you? Blessed you during this time when Micah was speaking. Under, one, it was under several of these kingdoms, they were very affluent. They were very blessed financially. The Assyrians were rising, and the Babylonians were still on the horizon as far as an empire. They had enjoyed basically like peace in the air for quite some time, and had become very successful because of it. So when he's saying this, he's condemning them. He said, listen, I have blessed you. Why have you turned from me? Why have you sinned against me in this way? This is an extremely tender-hearted verse where God is dealing with him like this. Look at, the, look at the way he breaks it down to him. He says, He has not wearied them, but blessed them. He has pulled them out of slavery. He says, Egypt and has ransomed you for the house of sin, sent, sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He sent them leaders, prophets, priests, good leadership that has led them. And he's blessed them when people have tried to curse them. If you remember the, the story of Balak and Balaam. Hired a prophet to try to curse them. God blessed them because of it. So those who have tried to curse you, he blessed. He blessed you because of it. So what does Israel do? How does Israel respond? Look at verse 6 seven. I'll read. Well, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? So it seems at first Israel is making a right response, right? How, how should I bow? What should I do? What should I, how should I bow before him? How should I seek his repentance? But I want you to see how far off their heart is from him. Look at this. And bow myself before the God on high. Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With yearlings and calves. Does the Lord take delight in the thousands of rams? 
do I need to multiply my sacrifice, essentially? Is that what, is that what he wants? More sacrifice? And 10,000 uh, 10, rivers of oil, shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? Their heart is so far from understanding what God would have them do that they even stoop to the blasphemy of saying, should I offer my firstborn child in sacrifice? They have completely lost understanding of who God is and what he desires of his people. Look, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. They have completely misunderstood. Micah responds in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? He has told them from the very beginning what he would have them do. But they've rejected it. They've rejected his law and his righteousness, and they have tried to institute their own way. And now the people's sins will be condemned and judged. Verses 9 to 12. The Lord has appointed their time of judgment, verse 9. So they can't get out of it. There's nothing, there's nothing going to stop it from happening. For they have stolen, verse 11, they've used unjust weights and unjust measures. They've stolen unethically. And they speak lies constantly, verse 12. Their punishment will come swiftly. And their punishment will be, starting in verse 13, as you look, remember to look, uh, if you will, on your own time, the Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, as you see a lot of this will show itself. Look, verse 13, they will have sickness. Verses 14 and 15, they will go hungry. Their produce won't, they won't produce no rain, no nothing, they will starve. They will bear, bear, re, uh, bear the reproach of their sins, verse 16. And Micah, in response to this, is overburdened. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. He laments. Woe is me, he cries out in the very beginning. For verse 1, he has become like a fruit pricker, pick, uh, picker in a drought. And he is left wanting and without fulfillment. There is no, uh, verse 2, there is no godly and righteous to be found. And they seek bloodshed. Micah is crying out. For this thing. He says, Woe is me. Verses 5 and 6. six. Then there is no one that can be trusted. But as is his fashion, as he ends with, There is no one to be trusted, they are all completely wicked. Look at verses, look at verses, verse 7. Micah turns. But as for me, I will watch expectantly, expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O enemy, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Israel, look at verse 9. Now the nation speaks. I will bear the indignation, indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. So they will be repentant. They're starting to get the, understand the reality of their situation. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me out to the light 
and I will see his righteousness. And then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her, who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time she will be trampled down like mire on the streets. So restoration will come. They, he, I will see his righteousness again. They understand that restoration will come. The millennial kingdom will come. Look at this, verse 11. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will, will your boundary be extended. So their, so their uh, affluence will extend beyond measure. In verse 12. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. All around the world they will come to Israel, to Zion. And the enemies will be crushed. Look at verse 13. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Sin will have its price. Micah, coming to the end here, Micah offers a prayer. Look again at the shepherd motif, how he cries out constantly for God to shepherd his people. Look at verse 14. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruit field, fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. Does the answer come? Does God answer his people? Look at the next verse. God answers, In the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. So God will once again restore them to power and prominence. God will once again shepherd his people. Nations will see and be ashamed of, of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. Complete destruction of their enemies. This is a prayer of hope and understanding that the end will come. The enemies will fall. Jerusalem, Israel will rise. And we see verses 18 through 20, the final section. A beautiful reminder of the future. This is actually a play on Micah's name. Verse 18 is, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He will forgive them and he will pass over their transgressions. He will show compassion to them. Look at verse 19. And his anger, in verse 18, will not be forever because of his character. Look at the latter half of 18. Because he delights in unchanging love. God's character and his promise and his faithfulness will show through. He will restore Israel to their covenant promise. Look at verse 20. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. He reminds them 
that I will wash away your sins, that I will, t- that I will restore you because of his covenant faithfulness. The millennial kingdom will come and the people of Israel will be restored to their king. This is all this whole letter of Micah, whole book of Micah speaks of the faithfulness and the justice of God. He is just to punish sin and he will punish sin. He is faithful in his justice. But he is also faithful in his salvation and faithful in his mercy. To those who are in him, they will receive the faithful promise of their salvation. To those who are not in him, who are disobedient and reject him and reject Christ today, will experience what the people in this book experienced. They will experience destruction. They will be cast into hell for eternity. That's a horrible, horrible thought. But today is the day. Believe on Christ. Repent and believe today. Rest in the faithful promises of God. Let day be today. Thank you. This is Micah. It's a wonderful book. We'll pray. We'll end it. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness and your justice. We thank you for your word and your promises, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for all things. We ask you to please lead us and guide us and direct us in all the ways that you can, Lord. We thank you for everything. In Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.